Hi, I'm Anna-Claire Harper, and you're listening to The Return, property and investment podcast, sharing insights and information on key topics from real estate technology to sustainability. Feel free to get in touch or follow recent news by connecting on LinkedIn, Anna-Claire Harper. Hi, and welcome to The Return, the podcast which opens up the world of investing, making important information easier to understand and more interesting. I'm Anna, and in this episode, I had the privilege of interviewing Ben Reynolds, who writes one of the top blogs on dividend investing worldwide. So there are many different approaches to investing in the stock market. Some strategies are based on short-term bets for or against price changes, and others are much more long-term. Some focus purely on price growth and others on income. We wanted to cover dividend stocks to dispel the myth that stock market investments are just like betting. As this interview shows, there is a lot of science and a really long-term fundamentals-based approach behind some stock market strategies. And it is possible to invest with the view to taking an income from the stock market rather than just gambling for short-term wins with the right strategy and focus. So for potential investors who like the idea of making an income from their investments and are also attracted by the idea of owning businesses via the stock market, this interview is for you. It digs into how to find the right stocks to buy, the importance of science over emotion in investing, and how the forces of demand and supply are affecting returns in the stock market. So over to the interview. Our guest today, Ben Reynolds, writes Sure Dividend, one of the best and most widely respected blogs in the world on the topic of dividends. He's also featured on top investment sites such as Seeking Alpha, The Motley Fool and MSN Money and has been successfully investing in dividend stocks for many years. So he's the perfect guest to discuss the world of dividend investing with. So welcome to the podcast, Ben, and thank you for joining us. Thank you. Glad to be here. So starting off, for those who aren't familiar with the idea, can you explain the basic premise of dividend investing and what attracts so many people to it? Yeah, absolutely. The The very basic idea behind it is that your investment should be paying you an income stream. And when you invest in the stock market, you're buying fractional ownership. You're buying a little piece of a big business. And that, that should entitle you to a portion of that company's income. And so a dividend stock will pay out a little bit of the money they make to their shareholders, and that creates an income stream from your stock investments. Okay. So it's typically people who want an income from their investment rather than people who, let's say, are kind of speculatively investing in the hope of a gain, for example, in cryptocurrencies or hot tech stocks. Exactly. It's, it's pretty much the opposite of a cryptocurrency investment. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And so what was it that triggered you to get so interested in dividend investing? Yeah, my, my road to dividend investing and, and I sure dividend, we focus a lot on dividend growth investing, uh, which is just looking for growing dividends. But my, my road to that was a little bit different than I think most people's. For me, I was really interested in what factors cause, cause some stocks to outperform others. And when I was looking at those factors, I was looking at things like stocks with low price earnings ratios tend to outperform, uh, stocks with low volatilities, uh, stocks that have paid rising dividends for very long periods of time. These things cause were causing outperformance and it was well documented. And so I kind of, I looked at all these different factors and as, when I was looking at the type of companies that, that showed up with those factors, they tended to be dividend growth stocks. So that made me think, okay, this is, this is very interesting and something I should look into further. Yeah. Were you working in finance at the time then, or was, did someone else introduce you to the idea? Uh, well, the, the, the initial attraction to looking at factors came from, from, uh, my finance degree in college. 
And I wasn't working in finance at the time. I was, I was working outside of finance, but I was very interested in investing in finance. So I was spending most of my free time reading investing books and, and researching. Mm. Okay. And so you talked a bit about um, alternatives or completely different alternatives like cryptocurrencies. What are the key sort of closer alternatives to dividend investing as a strategy um, in the stock market? And why do you recommend focusing on dividend stocks over these? Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, in the stock market, the, the big alternative to a dividend paying stock would be a stock that doesn't pay dividends. And the, the real advantage to, if you're just looking like globally at dividend stocks, for a company to pay out a dividend, it has to have some sort of cash flows or it won't be paying dividends for long. Uh, you know, like a, a startup biotech company that's pre-revenue, it can't pay dividends because it's not making money. Mm. So if, if you're focusing on companies that are actually making money, I mean, it, it sounds so simple, but that's, that's a big advantage to kind of hoping for that home run or that next big thing that a lot of times doesn't come up. Hmm. So from what you've just said, it sounds like it's not just about the income. It's also in a, to an extent about the risk associated with the company as the underlying asset. Yes, exactly. Um, and for me, you know, I, at, you know, sure, dividend, we, we focus on dividends, but really the underlying reason we're investing and recommending dividend growth stocks is, is for what the underlying business is and kind of an offset of a strong business that's mature will be that they're probably paying growing dividends. Okay. What is a typical return for a dividend stock or a range of returns across different dividend stocks of different qualities? Okay. Yeah. So um, just kind of globally again, Ned Davis Research did a study from 1972 through 2013, so about 40 years. Uh, the overall market returned 7.6% a year, and just dividend-paying stocks returned 9.3% a year. So just, just doing nothing but saying, I only want to invest in dividend stocks over long periods of time. You know, nothing's guaranteed, of course, but it looks like you'll probably have a bit better return than saying, you know, I don't care about dividends at all. Mm. So that's, that's a globally. And then from there, companies that have long histories of dividend increases and something maybe we'll talk about later is the dividend aristocrats would be a group of that. High yield dividend stocks tend to do a bit better. And there's some caveats there as well, but high yields and low payout ratios, especially low valuations. Um, and there are several other factors that, you know, on top of just paying a dividend will probably help either improve returns or reduce risk. Yeah. So you obviously know an awful lot about dividends being your massive focus. How much difference for an average investor does knowledge make? For example, how much better would your returns be as an experienced investor who like, regularly reads up on the topic or on specific stocks versus a novice just you know, without much knowledge of the stock market? That's a really good question. And it's kind of difficult to answer because one of the things that's really attractive about investing in, in great dividend paying businesses is that it's actually not that difficult to do. Yeah. It's a lot more easier than, than knowing, you know, where a cryptocurrency is going to be 10 years from now. How do, how do they work? What are the underlying principles there? Do you understand all of that? I mean, it, that's more difficult than saying, okay, is, you know, what's Walmart going to be doing in five years from now? What's, what's McDonald's going to be doing? They're, yeah. they're probably going to be doing about what they've been doing for the last 30 years. Mm-hmm. So it's at some level, someone who doesn't have as much experience can do well. But there, you, know, you do have to have enough knowledge there to know what you're looking for, what is a, a strong business, what's the dividend history. And, and more than just knowledge, it's to have the conviction to say, 
when the next great recession comes around, can you hold these stocks when their prices go down? Because in a recession, pretty much every stock's price goes down. Uh, can you hold through that? And that's really the big, the big difference between someone who's probably researched this and is, is very interested in it versus someone who, who's looking to make a quick buck or doesn't know as much about it. Sure. Okay, so going back to kind of strategies and ideas around dividend investing, you wrote a really useful list of eight rules of dividend investing, which is on your website. Talk us through the rules and why each one is so important. I think this is what can kind of open up the world of dividend investing to people who might not know it otherwise. So it's really useful. Yes, thank you. Um, yeah, and uh, as a just before I get into each one, the idea behind having a rule-based system is to remove as much emotion and bias from the investment process as possible. So if we're ranking stocks on quantitative factors, we're we're removing a lot of the you know like oh well I, I slipped and fell in a McDonald's so I really don't like those people. Yeah. Um, from <laughs> yeah, the <exactly>. investing process. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or whatever you know whatever your pro or con or whatever that is, we're, we're trying to remove that to be as rational as possible. Okay. Uh, so with that said, there's eight rules. We have five buy rules, and these are, are the factors that we rank stocks on to find our, our buy recommendations. And the first one is called the quality rule. And the, the idea behind it is to invest in quality businesses with a proven long-term record of stability, growth, and profitability. And one of, one of the best investors of the last 20, 30 years, Seth Klarman, who runs uh, the Bopost Group hedge fund, uh, a great quote from him is, the single greatest edge an investor can have is a long-term orientation. And this rule really tries to capture that. And so what we do is we rank stocks by their dividend history and their corporate history. So all things being equal, we'd prefer a stock that's paid increasing dividends for 40 years in a row and has been around since 1900 because that proves that that company can can change with the times, or it doesn't have to change with the times. Uh, a company like that would be Coca-Cola, um, and and even with soda sales declining some, they're in so many other beverage categories that the company as a whole is still doing really well. And you you have to think, 100 years from now, people will probably be drinking beverages, so Coca-Cola has a, a good chance of continuing to grow over the next 100 years. Um, and that's that's what we look for with the quality rule. And the evidence behind it is the Dividend Aristocrats Index, which is a group of 50 stocks that have increased their dividends for 25 or more years in a row. So these are very stable blue chip stocks. They have outperformed the S&P 500 by close to three percentage points a year on average over the last decade. So this is a substantial outperformance and they've done it with less volatility. Uh, so it's very counterintuitive to you know, more risk, more return. These are stocks with lower risk, better returns. So that's something we, we really pay attention to. And compounding that over 10 years, that's really quite significant. Yes, it's, and, and if, you, if you dissect those returns, the dividend aristocrats index as a whole, and I think applicable to most high quality dividend growth stocks, they tend to do maybe slightly underperform during a strong bull market, but not by too much. Mm. And then they do a lot better during a recession. But their, their stock price is still going to fall on an absolute basis, but relative to the, the broader market, they tend to do a lot better because they're more stable businesses. Right. And you're not just holding because of the valuation at that point anyway. Yes. And the, the second rule is the bargain rule. And the idea here is pretty simple. All, all things being equal again, if a stock's paying you 5% a year, you prefer that to a stock that's paying you 1% a year. 
Uh, so just we rank stocks by dividend yield, the higher, the better. And there, there's evidence, um, a very long-term study over an 85-year period from 1928 through 2013, the, the top 20% of high, highest yielding stocks and these are these studies are in, in uh, U.S. markets, just to, but yep. they they should yeah. be applicable over you know any developed country. The highest twenty percent of yielding stocks outperform the lowest twenty percent by about one point eight percentage points a year, and this is over an eighty year period. So it, it's pretty substantial. Uh, so we we do and you know all things being equal, like we're not just looking for the highest yielding stock in the world, but we'd prefer higher yields to lower. Uh, the the third rule is is the safety rule. And we kind of have a, a different approach to safety here. Instead of looking at the payout ratio, which is a good thing to look at. So just describe that for anyone who doesn't know what that term means. Oh yeah, sure. Uh, the payout ratio is just the dividends paid divided by earnings. So if a stock makes is paying a dollar a share in dividends and it makes $2 a share in profits, its payout ratio is 50%. So the lower the payout ratio, the safer the dividend, because if, if the payout ratio is low and, and something happens, say earnings fall for a year, the company has, has a, a big margin of safety there to continue paying its dividend. Uh, if the di- payout ratio is extremely high, if the payout ratio is 99% and they're paying virtually every penny the company makes right back out as a dividend, something happens, you know, things happen to every business. Something happens for a year, the dividend might get cut. Mm. Uh, so so uh, that's the payout ratio. We take a slightly different approach. Um, for just reasons, uh, some more technical reasons that when looking at a large data set, sometimes earnings data isn't, it can be distorted on a year-to-year basis. So we look at uh, a history of share repurchases instead. And the idea behind this is that if a company's buying back a lot of its shares, it has a big buffer, it has a lot of cash flows that it's using to not only pay dividends, but also to buy back shares. And the first thing that's likely to go if, if something happens to earnings is the share purchases and not the dividends. There's, again, a big buffer there between the dividend and the amount of cash the company's making. And then on top of that, companies that repurchase shares are returning money to shareholders, they're reducing the share count, and those are things that are also associated with with higher returns over the long run. Uh, The fourth rule is the growth rule, and uh, very straightforward, invest in businesses that have a history of solid growth. Again, all things being equal, you'd prefer a stock that's growing at 10% a year to one that's not growing at all. So when um, you say when you say growing, they're growing everything in their business, or they're growing some specific. You know, they're growing their earnings, or yeah. Uh, what do you look we, at? We typically we typically look at earnings. Yeah. You know, in a, in a perfect world, we'd look at the intrinsic value per share growth, which is impossible to to calculate exactly. Um, you just want to see how fast the business is growing, um, and you want to definitely see that the most important part is on a per share basis. So you could look at earnings per share, or dividends per share, or even book value per share. But the per share basis is really critical because uh, what a company could do is it could issue a ton of shares, dilute shareholders, and then grow its earnings by buying com- buying other businesses. But the individual shareholders are much worse off because they're getting diluted. Yeah. Um, which is the opposite of, of a, a company that's buying back its shares. So on a per share basis is critical there. And then the final of our buy ranking rules is we call it the peace of mind rule. And we look for businesses that people tend to invest in during recessions or times of panic. And, and what we look for quantitatively is low volatility stocks. 
And the low volatility just means how bouncy is the stock price. Mm -hmm. So uh, a low volatility stock will, you know, uh, typically be a, a utility, although we, we don't on average prefer utilities because they have very low growth. But utilities have a, a low volatility, really established consumer companies like, like Coca-Cola, which I mentioned, Pepsi, businesses like Johnson & Johnson. These are the type of companies that have really low stock price volatilities because their earnings tend to be very stable. So if a recession hits, that, that home builder is not going to probably do well because people aren't going to be buying as many homes and home builders aren't going to be building many homes. So their earnings are just going to fall off a cliff. Hmm. But Coca-Cola is probably still going to be selling beverages during a recession. Or, or a McDonald's is probably going to sell more, more hamburgers during a recession because people are trading, trading down to, to lower priced restaurant experiences. Hmm. If you can call McDonald's a restaurant experience. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's how you look at it, doesn't it? So, th yes. so things which are either small, small portions of people's expenditure or necessary portions of people's expenditure that they can't get out of. Right, right. Uh, that, that's it exactly. And then healthcare is another big one. You know, people aren't probably going to cut back on healthcare expenses if, if there's a, a situation there, regardless of what the economy is doing. Mm. You're not going to put off a surgery because the S&P 500 is down, or you shouldn't at least. Sure. Well, that maybe is that slightly different geographically? Um, oh, I suppose that would be different uh, geographically for sure. Potentially in the um, UK, less of a <laughs> less of a thing with the NHS, but yes, that's that's true. Uh, in the US, you know, we the the healthcare sector here is and for investing is huge, and it's been growing quickly, and it, it does well even in recessions. Mm. So just you know, not not taking into account from a personal perspective, but just from an investment perspective, it's yep. one of the more recession resistant uh, sectors around. So that was the five um, buy rules. What about the other yes. three rules? And so we, we use those and we, we rank stocks based on those rules. And we, we give a bit different weights to different rules. And we have, we have two general sell rules. And the, the idea behind share dividend is very much long-term investing. So ideally, we want to buy a stock and then never sell it because it just continues to pay us more in dividends every year. We don't really need to look at the stock price. That's the ideal situation. It doesn't always happen. So we have two sell rules. One of them is called the overpriced rule. And that's if a stock becomes extremely overvalued. Its future total returns are probably going to be small because its, its valuation level is probably going to fall over time. And that's going to really be a drag on returns. So you don't want to be in that situation. And kind of an analogy would be like, if you, if you bought a car, say, say the car is worth $10,000 after, after five years. And then someone comes and says, hey, I'll pay you $30,000 for your car. You should probably sell it to that person and be like, all right, thank you very much. Yep. And so if that type of situation occurs with a stock that we've recommended, we're, we're probably going to recommend to sell it just to take advantage of that mm. uh, mispricing. Are there any examples of that? Yeah, well, it's like what we look at right now is we look for a normalized price to earnings ratio over 40, which happens very rarely in a high quality businesses. So that's, that's quite Just, technical. So <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's basically if it trades at a very high multiple to earnings. Yep. Okay. And this is one of the biggest, uh, the, the math behind this or the evidence behind it is kind of ridiculous, like how, how powerful it is. The top 10%, I'm sorry, the 10% the of stocks, the lowest price to earnings ratios mm. outperformed the 10% of stocks with the highest price earnings ratios, those would probably be like social media stocks today or 
uh, any stock that announced that they might have some sort of cryptocurrency involvement in the next decade, 9% a year is the difference there, which is just absurd. So really, a lot of that is avoiding those really high price stocks. We don't want to be in those. Yeah. And that that's this period of time for that was from 1975 to 2010. But there's tons of like the value effect is is very well researched. And that's one of the biggest known, you know, things to avoid in the stock market is really high price earnings ratio stocks. But people don't avoid them. It, professional investors, because there's always a story behind it. You know, there's a story behind how amazing Snapchat's going to be and it's going to be the best thing ever. And if you buy now, it'll be like buying Amazon in 1999. And, and you know, maybe that's true for that one, but for every one you get, you're probably going to miss on 10 others. Sure. Or exactly. 100 others. So that's kind of the, and the, the numbers bear and so that your out. your average, your 9% um, difference is presumably partly related to the fact that half of them or 9 out of 10 or whatever. Um, yes. Yeah, exactly. Don't, like, don't come to fruition. And that's, you know, people get skewed data too from like, if you talk to your friends, they'll be like, oh yeah, you know, I, I buy Amazon in 2002. I'm, I'm the greatest investor ever. But you don't see all the mistakes they also made. Yeah. So that's, that's why people get kind of sold on stories instead of looking at the numbers mm. behind the stock. And just to keep moving on, the, the seventh, or our seventh rule, it's the second sell rule, is called the survival of the fittest rule. And what we do is if a stock reduces or eliminates its dividend, it's basically violated the whole reason we bought it, which was to pay us rising dividends. So we recommend selling it. And, you know, there, of course, there are exceptions. Sometimes stocks recover. But in general, if a company has to reduce its dividend or eliminate it, it's really struggling and it's probably lost its competitive advantage. So that's, you know, that basically means cut your losses at that point and invest in something that should be paying you increasing dividends over time. Okay. Is there one more rule? And, yes. The final <laughs> rule is, is the hedge your bets rule. And um, this one is we, we recommend a, a bit more concentrated perf- portfolios than t- you typically see. We usually look for 20 to 30 stock portfolios, but our financial role here or that we see is 90% of the benefits of diversification come from owning just 12 to 18 stocks. So people that own 500 or 5,000 stocks, that's way more than you need to get the benefits of diversification. 20 to 30 is you're already getting virtually all the benefits. The, the upside to a smaller portfolio is you, you're concentrated in your best ideas. So, you know, hopefully your, your best idea is better than your 500th best idea. And so you'd, you'd want to take money from your 500th best idea and put it into your current best idea. Mm-hmm. So if you, looked at your, if you looked at your portfolio and realized you had, what, a thousand different types of <laughs> different stocks or something, you would want to kind of Pareto, I guess it's Pareto analysis on it until you had only the 20 or, or 12. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's, a, that's a phenomenal example. Is it, is, it follows the 80-20 rule pretty well. Mm. That's really interesting. Well, I think those those rules are really, really useful. And like you said, by putting kind of numbers and maths and rules to it, it takes away that everyone gets wants to get carried away when they hear about the next sort of social media or cryptocurrency idea. And it does sound too good to be true. But having rules where there's enough evidence, like you've just described, makes it seem a little bit more, well, a lot more interesting to be investing something more stable. Yes, that's, you know, we're we're trying to, to not um, focus on the story and focus on the numbers instead. Mm. 
So uh, quite a lot of those rules cover how to make decisions, like buy and sell decisions. What about, I mean, if you're looking at a new individual opportunity, um, do you just run through the rules? What's the process that you go through? Yeah, well, I mean, for me personally, I will look at what's ranked highly um, in our current current uh, Sure Dividend new- <clears throat> newsletter or Sure Retirement newsletter. Mm-hmm. And then I'll select from those based on what's already in my portfolio. Okay. So you wouldn't buy more of, or you might buy more of what you'd already got or... Um... Yes. Yes. Because uh, that's one of, you know, if you're, if you have a concentrated portfolio and you're trying to only hold 20 or 30 stocks, you, you don't want to keep buying just new stocks constantly. Like if a stock that I already have looks like a good buy right now, I'll just buy more shares of that company. Yeah. Um, what are the key drivers of value then in dividend stocks? We talked a bit about the fundamental businesses um, and what was driving them. Is that it or is there more that drives value? Yeah, well, that's, that's certainly the long-term uh, value driver is the underlying growth of the business on a per share basis. Mm. That's really, you know, no matter what the company's dividend policy is, if, if the company goes, goes to trash, your investment's not going to do well, even if they're paying out all the money they make as dividends. So at the end of the day, it's, it's really to make sure you're in a good company. Mm. A lot has changed in the investment world in general in recent years, thanks to economic changes, regulatory changes, technological changes. What's changed in the world of dividend investing specifically? And what do you think will be the biggest drivers of change going forward? Yeah, well, that's an that's a interesting question. And the change that I've seen just in the last couple of years is it's much more difficult now to find reasonably valued, high-quality dividend growth stocks. It's, it's very difficult. There's very few of them around today. And the ones that are around are because there's some negative news story about them right now. So it's, it's not, I mean, even four or five years ago, it wasn't as difficult as today. And I think what's driving that is just one, the, the valuation level of the market as a whole is extremely elevated and that's being driven by low interest rates and we're seeing interest rates slowly rise. Uh, it's been, I think from like 1980, the 1980s to now has been a, a period of declining interest rates and that has the, the effect of pushing up valuations for all, all assets including stocks. So we're just starting to see maybe a change in that trend but that's part of the reason why valuation multiples are, are so high today and it's so difficult to find reasonably priced stocks. Hmm. So that's, that's one big change. And then demographically, if you look at the demographics of the United Kingdom or the United States, it, it certainly is trending much older than it, it used to at any time in history, or at least any time in history that I've, I've seen, probably ever. And, and this, the people that are, you know, the baby boomer generation, that's what we call in the United States, people probably in their 50s to, to 70s, I, somewhere in that range, they're wanting income. So they're investing more into to income producing securities. We have such low interest rates that a lot of baby boomers are interested in the typical bond investments they might be. And that might be for the best because if interest rates rise, bonds are going to get hurt more than dividend stocks. Uh, but that's put more money into dividend stocks. And that again talks about how valuation is important. You have to recognize that and, and look for, for the few good values that are still there and not get caught up in, in buying great businesses at terrible prices. Hmm. So from, it sounds like it's more about demographics and liquidity than regulatory or technology or economic changes. Oh, yeah. That's, uh, 
yeah, the, so like technology, it's been a benefit for sure. It's much easier to invest in stocks now than it was, you know, like with, with online discount brokerages, it's, it's very easy to purchase uh, any stock. Um, and part of that's actually a bad thing because it, mm. it incentivizes people to sell a lot easier too. But technologically, I mean, that's, that's an, an advantage. There's probably a dividend yields as a whole have gone down over a very long period of time uh, for several reasons. And that's another factor that's interesting. Part of that is the growing importance of the technology sector. I mean, most of the biggest stocks in the world, biggest corporations in the world are, are tech uh, corporations now, and they typically don't pay dividends. So you see like, you'll see the, the big indexes having lower dividend yields. And then on top of that, more companies pay lower percentage of their earnings out as dividends and they're using more to repurchase shares. And that, that's for tax reasons more than, more than anything else, I think. Interesting. Uh, I should say tax reasons. And there's an incentive for management. Like if, if the company CEO is compensated by, by how well the share price does, he'd much rather buy back a bunch of shares to, to boost up the share price than to pay it out as dividends. Hmm. Interesting. It sounds like there's a bit of a conflict there. Yeah, no, I, I mean, it, it probably is a conflict there. And, and that's why you'll see one of the downsides of share purchases. They're phenomenal if, if they're done intelligently and a company's buying back their shares just at a normal price or especially if they're undervalued. But you'll see companies buying back shares when they're at the highest price earnings ratio they've been in a decade. And that doesn't make any sense. And it's bad for shareholders. But a lot of companies do that. So aside from being hard to find a good return now, are there any potential disadvantages and risks to dividend investing? Um, and how would you recommend that potential investors minimize or mitigate them? Yeah, it's, uh, the, the biggest risk, and especially if people starting out with dividend investing is they get very caught up in yield and they'll be like, okay, this stock yields 3%, but I found one that yields 15%. I got to go with the 15% one. Mm. And those, the, the really high yields, you know, of course there are exceptions. There, there are a couple that are probably great investments and are super undervalued, but by and large, they're very risky, very high risk and probably going to have very bad returns because they're so risky. Mm. Um, so that's one of the big mistakes invest, uh, dividend investors make. And you can counteract that by looking at payout ratios, looking at dividend history, a long dividend history and a low payout ratio, you're very likely to get rising dividend income. Um, a high payout ratio and no dividend history, it's a, it's a lot more tricky of a situation. Mm. Uh, and then the, the second risk I would say is, is valuation, which we've discussed quite a bit, but you know, don't invest in really overvalued stocks. Right. And again, looking at the numbers, using the rules that you described to kind of minimize the chance that you get involved with something that's overvalued. Yes, exactly. Okay. Um, you mentioned earlier that accessibility was improving. How can an individual who's interested in dividend stocks get involved? Do they need an intermediary? How do they do it? Yeah, there, there's two, two ways. Um, the, the vastly more common way is to just use whatever brokerage you use to buy stocks. So, you know, any of the large brokerages should offer, you know, discount online stock purchases. So that's one method. That, that's what I do. There, there are some technical reasons that sometimes people prefer to own stocks directly. And there are a lot of uh, dividend paying stocks that you can actually purchase shares directly from the company without using an intermediary. And why would you do that? Just to reduce the fees or... I mean, in some cases, you probably, you might not even reduce fees. It's more to have the 
the title of the stock in your name personally instead of in the brokerage's name. Okay. Which I, I guess, and you know, for for practical purposes, that tends to not matter. But if you're very concerned that your brokerage is, you know, out, out to get you, or that something really big is going to happen in the world and brokerages are going to go belly up or something like that, you can eliminate that risk by investing directly. Mm, okay. So for potential investors who want to learn more and, and look at investing, are there any resources that you could recommend aside from your blog or as well as your blog? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, of course, I'd recommend Sure Dividend, um, but I'm probably That's a little biased a there. there. <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> uh, absolutely. Um, I, one of my favorite dividend sites is is called Dividend Growth Investor, mm-hmm. and the the URL is just dividendgrowthinvestor.com. Uh, he, he writes a lot about investing in dividend growth stocks as the name implied, but he does a great job with it. And another great resource is is called the DRIP Investing Resource Center. And DRIP is, is short for Dividend Reinvestment Program. And that just means you're taking the dividends the company pays and you're buying more shares with them. And it happens automatically. But the DRIP Investing website is phenomenal. It's a great resource for individual investors. So I would recommend visiting that one as well. Okay. And uh, your blog's website is SureDividend. Yes, uh, suredividend.com. And I'd recommend visiting our dividend aristocrats list. Mm -hmm. It's a list of of the 50 S&P 500 stocks with 25 plus years of consecutive dividend increases. And that's the index that has outperformed by about three percentage points a year over the last decade. That's great. Um, And you've been writing your blog for some years now, and it's amassed a huge following and a lot of respect. What have been the biggest impacts of the blog, both for yourself and for readers? Um, I, I think for both, I guess I can't 100% know exactly what readers think, but for me, it's really been a focus on long-term investing, and I hope that's the message my readers get as well. Um, even more than in looking at dividends is to really focus in the long-term, and my my goal and my hope is that we really reduce panic selling and we, we stop people from selling when they shouldn't and help people to buy buy stocks that have negative news stories about them and hold hold or buy during those times and and not be concerned by that type of thing. Awesome. Is there anything you wish you'd known about dividend investing when you started, which other potential investors could learn from? Uh, well, I would, I, when I was really getting into dividend investing, I, I knew a, a decent amount about investing already. But for me, I wish, I wish there was a lot I wish I knew when I first started investing. Just uh, my first investing experience was I went to a financial advisor and he said, what type of risks do you want? And I was like, I, I don't know, because um, I didn't know anything about investing. And he was like, okay, well, how about a high-risk mutual fund, a medium-risk mutual fund, and a low-risk mutual fund? And I was like, sure, that sounds good to me. And he was like, all right, I'll see you later. And so that was my first experience with investing, which is not ideal. So I, I wish when I started, I knew about how mutual funds and financial advisors work, how yep. financial advisors are compensated. And then a bit later on, when I first started really learning about investing for myself, you know, we talked about the evidence for value investing and I, I got really caught up in, oh, the, the lowest valuations possible and you'll make some mistakes if you don't look at quality and you just look at value. Uh, so another thing I wish I knew is to really look at quality and how shareholder friendly the company is and not just what's the lowest price earnings ratio stock or, or you know, what, whatever valuation multiple, what's the lowest one in the market. Mm. So it's just much more sophisticated perspective now rather than when you make your first view and get, I guess, get burned a few times. Yes, uh, definitely. You know, I, 
I think it would be ideal to to learn without having real money at play, but it's it's um I guess you're a lot more incentivized when it's when it's your own it's account. So, it's so funny you say that because I was I agree. It's so nice to to be able to learn without actually putting money at risk, but at the same time, I think you learn lessons much harder or much yes. much easier to to actually get the learning when you've actually lost money or you've not made as much money as you'd hoped and actually seen the results of that. Yes, I mean that that's it. Like I don't think you probably don't get interested in it. Some people do, but most people don't get interested in investing and really push to learn more um, unless they have some type of stake. Mm. Okay, so just tying tying up now, for listeners who want to follow what you're up to and follow the blog um, and reach out, um, what's the best way for them to kind of reach out and follow you? Uh, yeah, definitely visit SureDividend.com. And if you opt to receive our, our Dividend Aristocrats list, which you'll see on the site, you can also email me questions and I'm happy to answer questions by email. The The only caveat there is as a newsletter provider, I don't provide personalized investment advice, but I'm happy to answer any general questions. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. That was a really, really useful overview. And thank you for sharing all your insights. Well, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. <laughs> thanks for listening. What I loved about this interview is that it dispels the idea that stock market investing is just short term and that stock market investors are just gambling on price changes. As the interview showed, that's just not the case. As ever, you can find out more on our website, thereturnpodcast.com, Instagram, the.return.podcast, Facebook, The Return Podcast group and page. And please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you've enjoyed or learned something from the podcast. Your reviews really help other people to find the podcast as Apple Podcasts loves reviews. Thank you and goodbye. Thanks for listening to The Return. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review as this really helps other people to find the podcast.